Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast, where we focus on how authors found success, looking at strategies that have taken them to the top of the bestseller charts, as well as what they've learned from their mistakes. Because being an indie author is more than knowing the latest marketing trend. It's about being innovative and creative and learning from your mistakes. Your co-hosts, Jamie Albright and Sarah Rosette, couldn't be more different. In fact, they're a study in contrasts. However, despite all of their differences, they agree that sharing what they wish they'd known, both the good and the bad, is the key to moving forward. Let's get to the show. Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. I'm Sarah Rosette. And I'm Jamie Albright. And today we have, drumroll, David Gogren. Yay! I love David. He is so, he's just a fun guy. Yeah. But more than that, he's a super smart guy and... We talk about his publishing journey and things he's learned. We talk about some email stuff. And, mm-hmm. yeah, he's just he's just a smart, smart guy. I and mean, he, really, between if he and Chris Fox tell me to run around the na- neighborhood naked with a <laughs> live chicken over my head, I'd do it because uh, they know what they're talking about. They do know what they're talking about. I wouldn't do that, though, even if they don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's the difference between you and me. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> We are a study in contrast. That's right. So, yeah, but David has tons of good information and he's got a great accent. I just love to listen to him talk. So, it was a good interview. And um, so, what's been going on with you? Oh, well, um, I have been writing. So, that's good. I've gotten back in and things are going well. I'm kind of just going slow and giving myself again a little bit of grace and not freaking out, um, you know, when things get hard or when I feel like I'm a little distracted. <clears throat> I, I try to push through a little bit and see if I can do it without, pan- you know, making myself panic or something. And and it seems to be working, yeah. So That's great. Yeah, I'm pretty happy. Uh, what about you? You've got a lot going on. Yeah, I am doing nothing right now. No writing. <laughs> <laughs> lot going on I do we're actually recording this a little bit early because I'm I'm, now I'm like I'm leaving just a couple days to go to the London Book Fair so I'm doing all the like last minute uh packing figuring out where I'm going to take where I'm going to go coordinating stuff and so zero writing is getting done and that's okay I will pick it back up when I get back but um yeah as long as the uh coronavirus doesn't shut everything down that's the plan yeah, uh, it's crazy. My husband's supposed to go to Boston to a giant food show that his company puts on, and I don't even know Maybe because not. It's, yeah, a lot of it's it's a lot of seafood and stuff, and so so much of that comes from East Asia. I mean, you know, China and East Asia. That yeah, I don't know. Uh, they they sent out a, a handbook or a memo like strictly forbidding handshaking and. Mm-hmm. Um, even standing too like close. so many feet, yeah, of people. So yeah, so I've heard the new thing now is the elbow bump. Have you heard that? Instead, no, of, I haven't. instead of shaking hands or hugging, you do like the fist bump or the elbow bump. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll let you know if that was yeah, the case. <laughs> that is hilarious. That is hilarious. Well, you know me. I made the mistake of watching Pandemic about two weeks oh, no. ago, and so <laughs> I'm in my bunker. <laughs> Oh, well, we went to. Oh, it's uh, not funny. I mean, I'm I'm not making light of the fact that there are people really right. sick and there are people that died, but yeah, it's just 
it's, well, it's just to... good probably for your mental health. Yeah, no, not <laughs> no. at all. Not no, at we all. went to uh, Costco just earlier this this morning, and there are people. Their baskets are full of water, mm-hmm. and I just thought, is this because of the virus thing? Are they worried about it water? Is. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we yeah, bought it is. all our normal stuff, but mm-hmm. we didn't go out of there with two baskets full of water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is a. a and we can put the link in the show notes, but there is a great podcast that I just listened to. It's called the daily and it's on the, it's on the coronavirus and it's not an alarmist or panicky kind of thing. It just pretty level headed stuff. And um, yeah, so we can put that in the show yeah. notes if you, if you want, because yeah. it was really good. It's only 23 minutes. So yeah, I think that'd be great. I love non alarmist yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's not, it's not alarmist, but it is, you know, it's good information and it's kind of, reasonable um but precautions to take maybe yeah Yeah. preparedness yeah 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 well the only other bit of news i have is i was on nathan van coop's podcast um book faces live so that was a lot of fun and we talked Mm -hmm. about writing a series and um a lot of mystery stuff a lot about Mm -hmm. mysteries Mm -hmm. and uh he had just seen knives out so we talked about that yeah, 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 that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'll put a link to that because his podcast is it's on Facebook and you can watch it there, but he also has it as a podcast that you can just download and listen to. So we'll okay. put a link to that. That'd be great. That'd be good. Cool. All right. Well, let's get on with the show. Sounds good. All right. David Govern was born in Ireland, but now lives in a quaint little fishing village in Portugal, although this hasn't increased the amount of time he spends outside the house. He writes historical fiction and science fiction under another name has helped thousands of authors publish their work through workshops, his blog, and writer's books, including Let's Get Digital, Strangers to Superfans, Book Bub Ads Expert, and Amazon Decoded. He's also created giant marketing campaigns for some of the biggest self-publishers on the planet. Visit davidgovern.com to get yourself a free book. Hey, David. Hello, how are you doing? And welcome, everyone, to a six-hour special of this podcast where we go through... (laughs) All the mistakes that I've made in my career. Well, I, we'll have to trim a few to fit it in, in the six hours. We could, we could all do multiple part episodes, so, but we'll just hit yeah. the high points this time. So, but anyway, so we're so excited to have you here. So tell us a little bit about um, yourself and how you got into writing. Um, well, I'm Irish, but I'm actually living in Portugal at the moment. And how did I get into writing? I, I, I think all Irish people naturally are are storytellers. I think it's kind of... Um, it's deep in our DNA. I think, you know, historically our, our, our culture was was kind of suppressed and, and we had this very strong oral tradition to kind of preserve all our, our all our stories and histories and, and things like that. And so everyone everyone in the country is a storyteller. You get into a, a taxi with an Irish taxi driver or you walk into a shop. <laughs> and even the way we, we greet each other, we don't say, how are you doing? We say, what's the story? And we actually oh, expect a story in response, you know, rather than a, you know, a monosyllabic answer or something. So I think, you know, a lot of us then progressed to actually writing the things down. I think I remember there was some Irish author once who said that Ireland's a nation of uh, four million writers and three literary agents, so, <laughs> which probably isn't that far from the truth. I think genuinely, I think everyone in Ireland probably fancies the idea of writing a book at some point. Um, and then probably a lot of people will, will have a stab at it. And But, you know, most people won't actually end up finishing the book or trying to get it out there. They fall by the wayside. But I think, yeah, everyone, everyone in Ireland loves telling stories. I think, uh, you know, conversation in Ireland, especially in the pub, it's almost like a combat sport. Everyone constantly trying to <laughs> outdo each other with one-liners. So that, you kind of get sharpened by that as you grow up. That sounds like my family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, what, 
what genres do you write? Because you write fiction and nonfiction, correct? Yeah, well, you're 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 diving straight into one of one of the first mistakes that I made because like the first <laughs> four things that I released, I think was. I think the first the first thing I released was like a, a very kind of literary short story. And the second thing was straight up science fiction. Third thing was nonfiction. Fourth thing was historical <laughs> fiction. And then the fifth was arguably action adventure rather than historical fiction. So yeah, I was I was all over the map. And I, I still kind of am. I'm just getting a bit more organized now. So I, I've essentially my big project this year, which I finally started doing after talking about it for a couple of years, is I'm splitting myself into three names this year: one for historical fiction, one for nonfiction, and one for science fiction. Oh, really? Yeah, that's a big undertaking. Yeah, yeah, it is. I <laughs> I, I, I should have got a group on on domain names or something. But uh, <laughs> so many of them now. But yeah, it's it's yeah. I know it doesn't really work for everyone, um, but for me personally. I think writing everything under one name was a huge mistake. And like, if that's, if, if I could change one thing um, out of my whole career, it would probably be that. And um, so I finally, eight years later, owning up to the mistake and, and actually doing something about it. <laughs> that's great. So now you've told us about your mistake, but tell us about your first big success. Yeah, first big success was 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 completely accidental. Um, it was Let's Get Digital, which was a book for authors about how to self-publish. And mm-hmm. I didn't even I didn't even mean to properly publish it. I was I was writing a blog about you know how to find editors and and uh, cover designers and all the little things that we have to do to get our mm-hmm. books out there. And one of my readers asked me to put it together in a PDF so he could download it and print it out while he was following the steps himself. And um, when I started compiling that, I realized I was actually writing a book, so I should do a proper. <laughs> so then I actually, you know, fleshed it out and wrote a proper book. And I was really surprised to see it. it. I think, you know, quite frankly, a lot of it was luck. I was in the right place at the right time. There wasn't a huge amount of resources out there at that time for authors um, who wanted to publish their own books. Now there's, you know, hundreds of books and blogs and courses and everything out there. But back then there was very little. And I, I got very lucky in that... Um, I think Joe Conrath mentioned me on his blog. And then at the oh, time, wow. there, was a, there was a very influential website called Pixel of Ink, which I think is still going. But at, at the time, it was, it, was, it was like the book bub of its time. Mm-hmm. That and eReader News Today were the two biggest sites for getting your books into the charts. And they gave it a hugely glowing review, um, which was a lovely surprise. And, and all that, just the book just took off after that and started selling more. And this is back when you didn't have to advertise or anything like that. And the book just took on a life of its own. Every month it was just selling more and more and more. And, you know, you, you kind of think something like that's going to go on forever, which sadly it doesn't, but it, it was nice while it lasted for sure. Yeah, that is great. You're actually the second person today I've heard talk about Pixel of Ink that kind of catapulted them into, uh, you know, notoriety. Um, I hadn't heard yeah. of them because I came in after that, but. Well, the, the market back in 2011 was so much smaller, like so fewer readers had, you know, Kindles and it didn't take, you know, I think these days, you know, if you're coming from a cold start, you might need to sell a thousand books or something to hit the top hundred on Amazon. Um, but back then it was, you know, a lot less than that. I don't know, a hundred or 200 sales or something like that. Mm-hmm. So like a, a nice mid-sized blog mentioning your book could have that power back then. Now, you, of course, you would need know 10 or 20 such such mentions and probably a few ads as well to to have that kind of impact but back then yeah a surprise review somewhere could just throw your book into the charts you'd wake up one day and you'd see your book in the charts and you'd try and desperately figure out what happened and who you need to send a a muffin basket to you know (laughs) back in the good old days yeah 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 Yeah. so um thinking going 
So you kind of sort of became an accidental nonfiction writer, it sounds like. Like you sort of yeah, fell yeah, into that. Yeah, much so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm brutally honest with it, about it, like, you know, if I, was, if I was ever standing up giving one of these Oscar speeches, you know, when they stand up and say, look, I'd like to thank all the people that believed in me. Well, the, the honest truth is nobody believed in me. I didn't even believe in me myself. <laughs> um, the only reason I had any kind of success is that I'm actually 99% powered by spite. And I remember somebody saying, <laughs> well, there was two people. There was one person said I'd never make it as a writer. And that really annoyed me that I wanted to prove them wrong. And the other person said that I was arguing with somewhere said that, you know, um, a self-publisher without um, a backlist or an audience from traditional publishing could never make it in, in self-publishing. And so those two people basically are the, the most responsible <laughs> for any success that I've had in my life. So I'd like to thank them very, very much. So you should dedicate a book to them. Yeah, yeah. I should. Yeah, I should. Yeah. yeah. I actually did that for um, my high school English teacher. I dedicated a book to her. and I didn't put her name in there. I said, but to my high school English teacher who didn't think I could write and to my college English professor who thought I could. So it was like, yeah, well, it, you it, know, it, the two. And which was, which was more motivating for you? Actually, it was the the English professor. So it's oh, yeah, interesting, yeah. you know, like for me, it wasn't, it, I needed that encouragement, but it sounds like you thrive on. Yeah, no, I'm a very contrary person. So like, <laughs> I, I, all I need now is someone is to say that I'll never make the New York Times bestseller list and, and then you can start the countdown clock. And there I'll, you I'll, go. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, so um, switching back sort of to um, writing and craft. So is there anything that you wish you had known about writing and craft when you got started? Yeah, I've had to uh, unlearn a lot of stuff, a lot of stupid assumptions that I had coming into my career. Um, certainly the biggest one, just in terms of basic craft stuff, was uh, I would have valued um, the skill of writing a pretty sentence much more than constructing a satisfying story. And and worse than that, I, I used to assume that you know storytelling was the easy part and writing a pretty sentence was the hard part. And so that's where I focused all my energies. And I was completely 100% wrong about that. You know, anybody can learn to write a, a pretty sentence. Constructing a story, one, especially one that's, you know, going to resonate widely with a lot of people, um, that is the biggest challenge of all. And I think you can spend your whole life trying to master that skill and you'll never, you'll probably never fully do it. You know, you, there's always yeah. some new aspect of storytelling to learn. Yeah. And readers value, of course, especially, you know, outside of literary fiction, but even in literary fiction, I think as well, like readers value a story more than, mm -hmm. than simply a pretty yeah. sentence. And you can have 100,000 words of the, the prettiest sentences that have ever been written. And it'll be unreadable unless it's, you know, crafted into an actual story that, that resonates with people emotionally and has a certain arc and all those things that we try and do. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's a very big mistake to make. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> so, so true, though. And a lot of times I'll get <laughs> readers that will say, oh, I love this. And it's just a sentence. It's not my pretty sentence. Nobody even talks about that. It's just a sentence that meant something to them so yeah it's a lot yeah of it's the one it's the one that gave yeah. them the, gave them the feels you know like yeah. so if you look at if you go and look at again outside of literary fiction which is kind of its own thing um if you in genre fiction if you go to like a book that is selling like crazy and if you look at the highlights on kindle they're always really interesting because they aren't like you know the you know the necessarily the most the best sentences you can mm -hmm. think of and you might be wondering like why the hell is this sentence highlighted so much? But then you go to the actual book or if you read the actual book, it's just at the moment when there's a big, you know, character reveal or a breakup scene or something emotionally important mm -hmm. usually in the story. And mm -hmm. um, so that's what readers value most, you know, and yeah. I, I think a lot of people make the mistake that I made that, you know, 
sometimes you might look at a, a book that's selling well, like everyone has their author they love to hate, you know, the one yes. that the success <laughs> that they sneer at or whatever. Um, but I think it's, it's an interesting intellectual exercise to look at any book that's selling well, especially if you don't think it's well written um, in terms of pretty sentences, maybe. And look at why is it selling? Why is it resonating with readers? Like for me, it's always Dan Brown. I, I just, something about his prose, just like, I know pe people are huge fans of his, but like when I read his books, like it's just, they drive me crazy. But I, I look, I read them really fast. I can't put them down. Like there's, so there's something in there. It's like there, there's, there's some like crack in the glue or something. I, I just can't, there's, there's something, there's this adhesive in there, like this propulsion. And, and I think it's, it's useful breaking that down and, and trying to, you know, get some of that inside your own work. Yeah, I agree. You know, for a romance, it's Fifty Shades and Twilight. You know, people love to hate those books, but I'll tell you right now, you cannot argue with the fact that they hit an emotional chord with thousands and thousands and thousands of readers, and you have to go back and look at why that is, I think. Yeah, exactly, and, and, you know, maybe, maybe it's a sign, if you can't see that straight away, maybe it's a sign that you're, you're sometimes focusing on the wrong things. And like, I, yes. I certainly mm -hmm. was, I was, I was being dismissive of his powers of description. Like, like all the sentences are like, you know, the tall man walked into the long room and, um, but I was focusing <laughs> on the wrong things. Like his, yeah. and if I'm, if I'm brutally honest, his pacing is amazing. He's mm -hmm. one of the best pacing like out there and, and the kind of intrigue and the cogs within cogs that he constructs and, right. and different things like that, that I wasn't valuing enough. And then, you know, when I start to value that stuff more then my own writing becomes stronger. I think that's awesome. So yeah. what do you wish you'd known about marketing um, when you first started marketing? Because initially you didn't have to, but yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, you did, but it was, it was a different kind of marketing maybe. These days uh, you, need, you need so much more critical mass in terms of sales to hit the charts and, yeah. you know, visibility in, in the stores is harder to get and harder to hold on to as well. It's kind of mm -hmm. slippier, you know, so you need yeah. a much more complicated marketing plan with different aspects to it. Um, the funny thing is because I was pretty slow to jump on the ad train, you know, Facebook ads and all this. And I, I kind of ignored them when they first started coming up because, and, and this is a particularly unforgivable mistake to make, but you, you know, you don't get to choose your mistakes, unfortunately. But, uh, Sadly, no. <laughs> no. But um, I, might have, I might have chosen a different one. But um, yeah, no, because I used to work in, in marketing and digital advertising in particular. You know, I used to work for, for when it was called Google AdWords. And oh. We used to see all sorts of people trying and publishers trying to sell books with Google AdWords and it never really worked. You know, nobody could really get it to work. I think partly because they were just little text ads without the book cover and it's hard to sell a book yeah. without the book cover. That's mm -hmm. really the primary sales device for, for right. any book. Um, so when Facebook ads started, I just made the assumption that they're not going to work to sell books. It's a waste of time and energy and money. And I just ignored, I ignored it. I made a number of critical assumptions that were completely false. So, even though I had the skill set and the experience, I completely ignored ads and, and missed, you know, something that could have given me a real edge around that. And, and that was at the, around the time when I had a lull in, in my own production of work. And so then my own sales were kind of falling. So it would have been, it would have been the perfect tonic at the time to actually jump on that, uh, on that trend. But I just, I just ignored it. And, and that was a huge mistake. Mm. It's good to know. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of writers do that because we, we love the writing part and the marketing part often seems like, you know, a distraction, but if you can get them both working together, it's, it's so much better. Yeah. I, I think it's just good to always question your assumptions. Like, like I was making a huge assumption there that, that Facebook ads work the same as Google ads and, and right. mm -hmm. you know, 
one thing I've learned after, you know, now learning how to use Facebook ads and and Book of Ads and other platforms, that they're all very, very different. And if you if you it can be really dangerous and expensive mistake to make to make those assumptions that they will carry from one platform or one marketing strategy into another. Yeah. That's exactly true. Yeah. Well, we were going to ask you what assumptions did you make, but you kind of just talked about it. So, yeah. <laughs> so we'll just go on to the next question. So um, um, uh, what do you look back on and think that wasn't a good use of my time? Um, well, this is something, well, yeah, there's a few things. Like I think when I first started blogging and, you know, became an accidental nonfiction author, <laughs> I think I was getting into a bit of number chasing in terms of, you know, just trying to get as many Twitter followers as possible, as many blog readers as possible. And I wasn't being very targeted in, you know, thinking deeply about who my reader is um, and, and what is the best use of my time. Like, like chasing Twitter followers is probably the worst possible use of your time, mm -hmm. especially when all your followers are just other authors and, yeah. you know, yeah. you're not building an audience, which I ultimately was, was planning to do, was build an audience for my fiction. I think I spent too much time building up a nonfiction profile just because it was easier for me to get a response there because I had that kind of free boost at the start of my career and I devoted too much time to that when really the smarter long-term play would have been, you know, writing more novels than nonfiction books, growing that audience. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's easy to look back and, and, you know, say these kind of things, but it's also important to kind of recognize where you kind of, where you made mistakes and, and that's what helps you kind of learn for the future. Yeah. 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 That's true. So, would you say you're risk averse or, do, or are you not very risk averse? Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it, it probably swings wildly with my mood. I think like, like a lot of authors, I think, you know, I, I, I veer between, you know, overconfidence in my work or my career and underconfidence. So it depends. It depends on what day you what day <laughs> you ask me, really. That is true. And you can make you can make huge mistakes depend on, depending on either. Like if you're overconfident, like sometimes you can, you know, you, you can do things like not kill an ad, which you really should have killed a long time ago. Or, yeah. um, you know, you can make all sorts of mistakes from being confident just as just as you can from being, you know, unconfident. Right. So, what would you say the biggest gamble you've taken in your writing career has been? Ooh, um, good question. <laughs> I think you know I decided. I decided a couple of years ago that I was going to completely reboot everything, um, both mm -hmm. my fiction and nonfiction. And mm -hmm. even though what I ultimately wanted to do was spend more time and energy building up a fiction audience, I figured what would give me the financial runway to do that and the freedom to do that was to do that first with the nonfiction side. Mm -hmm. So I decided even though what I wanted to do most of all was to write more novels, I said, okay, I'm going to pause that for two years and I'm going to completely reboot the nonfiction side. Um, well, it was either that or go and get a job, which I definitely didn't want to do. So, <laughs> I think I'm, I'm pretty much unemployable at this point. I think you know, once, you've been in woods, once you've been in the woods yeah. for five years, I think, I think that's it. You know? So you've got to make it work somehow. But uh, you've burned all your bridges. But um, yeah, so I decided to reboot everything. And uh, I made a couple of decisions which I think are going to stand to me over the course of my career. Because I always try and think of a career and try and plot out mm -hmm. a career mm -hmm. you know, the next 12 months or whatever. So I said, okay, I'll spend... Well, the original plan was to spend a year rebooting the nonfiction side and then move to fiction, but it ended up taking a couple of years, but I'm okay with that. Um, and then get some stability on that side and kind of set it up so that's nearly automated, so that my audience is stable and self-sustaining, and then I can move on to fiction without any pressure. Because 
when I originally went full time as an author, and this is, I think, mistake number 56, we're up there now. Um, <laughs> I, I did it very early because I had that initial early success. I, I think I was only self publishing for less than a year and a half when I went full time. And I just moved to London, which is, you know, pretty expensive place to live. And I took on a little um, mixer on the side. I think I was doing some copywriting work for, for a tech company. And I think I finished my last, my last gig with them in December 2012. And I said, okay, do you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the leap now. It's just perfect. Like I, I finished up my last contract. I don't really feel like going hustling for another one. I'll just go now. I'll go full time. And it was, it was too early. You know, I didn't, I didn't build up, you know, three months or six months of savings like you're supposed to mm-hmm. do. And no, no kind of padding. I just, I had nothing. Like I just, I was looking at the trend lines of sales and I was like, yeah, this, you know, if current trends continue, <laughs> I'll, I'll be in a yacht by, by summertime. And so. so I'll be in Portugal. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it only took eight more years. But um, I, I was, so I was thinking, yeah, like this, this is all looking good. Let's, let's just take the lead. And I really should have waited three months or six months because I was thinking, okay, if this is what I'm producing, you know, work-wise with, you know, working on, on the, on publishing and writing with half of my, my time, how much can I do without when I'm not working? You know, I can yeah. easily double this, you know, but it doesn't work like that. And even <laughs> no, psychologically, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And like, I totally froze up production ground to a halt. The pressure, like the pressure of having book sales has been the only thing that's going to put food on the table. Um, mm-hmm. And I've heard this happen to other writers. I didn't talk about it to anyone at the time because I thought there was just something wrong with me. But I've heard this happen to a lot of people. They go full time and then the pressure is on and then they freeze up. You know, it's not just yeah. a sideline gig anymore. It's your full time gig. And now you're like, oh no, what am I going to do now? And if you have one bad day or one bad writing session, then, you know, you can, it can just snowball in your head. And that's what happened. I ended up like working less, writing less. Um, and yeah, I really should have waited like three months or six months mm-hmm. before, before doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think that's really longer. common though. I think that's really common that, and people just haven't talked about it. Yeah. And I think it yeah, happens like, a lot. I've, I've yeah. only started talking about this to people in the last kind of, I think last year or so. And the ama- is amazed the amount of people that have said the same thing. Yeah. Because nobody, nobody really does talk about it. You're supposed to, you know, once you've gone full time, that's it. You're on the success train now. Right. And then, you know, yeah. everything is. And everything's roses and rainbows and it's all wonderful. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, and, and sure, like when people were, you know, giving out that advice, older hands were saying, you know, like, you know, do have an nest egg. Make sure you got all your bills covered for the next whatever mm-hmm. amount of months before you do it. I was just like, yeah, who's going to listen to them? They don't know what they're talking about. Like, let's just They don't know me. <laughs> yeah, but like because no one no one talked about that actual psychological side mm-hmm. of it. I was like, okay, yeah. if it's just about money, okay, fine. I, if I have to go out there and take another copywriting gig or something, I can do that. But it's it's right. about more than the money. It's a, there's yeah. a psychological shift as well that's sometimes difficult to handle. Right? Yeah. yeah. When that's I came home, I was like, got to write. I've got to write. This is my job. I've got to write. I've got to write. And three months later, I've told the story. I was sprawled in the living room floor watching the ceiling fan rotate, telling my story to my dog, thinking, I got to get out of here. Like, I was so depressed <laughs> because it was just tons of pressure. And I felt like I wasn't really accomplishing anything. But so yeah. it's the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, sometimes, sometimes our brains are our own worst enemy. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but it, because I went through that experience, then I was able to learn from it a little bit. So, like, when I. Then I spent I spent a few years living in Prague, where you know expenses were low, and and even though sales took a bit of a dip because I I'd stopped kind of releasing at the same pace, mm-hmm. um, and then I, I had a couple of launches that I screwed up in in a couple of different ways. We might we might get to in a minute, but um, 
<laughs> if, we, if we don't run out of time <laughs> to cover all of my mistakes. But yeah, so, um, and then we moved to Dublin, which is, again, is, I think it's like the, the cost of living is three or four times what it is in the, in the, in the Czech Republic. And I was like, okay, sales are a bit low at the moment. Um, should, I take, should I take a job here? Um, and I kind of looked, you know, will I take a job? Will I take a sideline gig? Will I do some kind of hustle on the side? And then I was like, no, let's just let's just reboot everything and, and get this working for me properly because you know I, I I should just be working for myself. I shouldn't be working for right. anyone else. Um, yeah. No, I won't I won't be satisfied if I went back to copywriting now or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Even if someone would hire me. So then I just you know I, I just took a very strategic look at everything and how mm-hmm. can I set this up to be to be more evergreen and and not have things where I have to update them every twelve months or or you know some kind of system and and you know switching my whole approach to email was was probably the biggest thing that I did in terms yeah. of building a sustainable audience and one that stays with you and, and doesn't forget about you in case you mm-hmm. go six months without releasing yeah. a book. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit because you kind of totally changed your point of view about email, right? Because used to mm-hmm. you were only, you'd only email when you had a new release. Yeah. And I think, and that's how I was and I didn't want to bother people. So can you kind of talk about how you, your mindset changed on that? Yeah, well, I, I, I read a brilliant book called Newsletter Ninja yeah. by Tommy Lebrecht, which yeah. um, some of you may have heard of, um, yeah. which was phenomenal. And I realized that I was doing absolutely everything wrong. Like she had a list of all the don'ts and I was like ticking everything. <laughs> Your picture was <laughs> next to each one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But um, yeah, no, like it's it's bad enough to only email people. And I realized, I, I think she might have said something like this in the book that, you know, if you you think you're doing somebody a favor by only emailing them when you have a new release, but really what you're doing is you're only contacting them when you want something from them. Because yeah. we, we think we, we think of a new release as a give. You know, that's us giving yeah. something to our audience or giving them a new book. But it's not. It's an ask. We're asking them for money, yeah. you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so you're only turning up at their house when you want something from them, which is not the basis for any, for any, for any good relationship. And combine that with someone who's slowed down production and slowed down releases. And then you get like you get a huge problem. So this mailing list that I you know spent so much effort building up, um, I was I was killing it in, in in a couple of different ways. And not only that, I had all my fiction and nonfiction mixed together on the same list. So half the emails that were going out to people they didn't care about, you know. Um, so everyone basically then over time would stop having any interest in opening emails because you'd hear from me very infrequently, and then half the time the content would be have no value to them whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so then, you, you know, after reading Newsletter Ninja, I just, I, I changed it completely. I split up my list into, into fiction and nonfiction. Um, I started my nonfiction. I started emailing them every week and just making sure that I was just giving in every email, just giving, 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 giving. And then every so often you would ask for something, whether it was, you know, you launching a book or needing a review on something or whatever else. And then the response, um, aside from, you know, the list growing like 600% over over a year and a half, um, once I switched to this. Aside from that, the response from when I do ask for something, when I do launch a book, or when I need a review on something or whatever, is is just so much better now. Yeah. And just and the response in terms of people actually replying to the emails and actually engaging, like the engagement, like it feels like I've built a little community now, like that mm-hmm. I actually have a community with my readers. Whereas before, I think by the time I released. Um, I think my third historical novel in 2016, that was probably the lowest point when I knew something was deeply wrong with how I was running my business. Um, the response rate on that email, and it was the best book. It was the best book I'd written. And I put it out there and nobody opened the email. And the people that did, nobody clicked on it. And those that clicked on it, very few of them bought it. 
And it was just, it was crushing. I was like, okay, my craft is better than it's ever been. And the response is the worst it has been. So mm-hmm. something is deeply wrong here. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah. But it took me it took me about a year of thinking about that and, and then going to conferences and listening to a couple of people talk about email and then coming along to, to, to Tammy's. I think it was she launched a course first in December mm-hmm. 2017, which was great timing because I was just about to release a book the following month. So it was just in time to save me from probably making another huge mistake. Yeah. Well, well I, if you are not David's nonfiction email list, they should get on. Really yeah. great information. You do give yeah. a lot lot of good information yeah that's just what i was going to say because i was going to say your emails i actually save them in my i have a little folder and i just put them in there so that i can refer back to them because they're so information dense yeah and they you know they're just excellent so highly recommended so that's quite a quite a change so um for your your mindset on email so um, another one of our questions is have you ever made a mistake that turned out to be a good thing so i mean yeah, well, you kind I of just describe something but if yeah, I think I think you know not not using pen names was a huge mistake. But I think ultimately that might again, if I take you know the big career long view, it might end up being a blessing in disguise. In that you know because I I messed it up so badly the first time around, and it took me so long to to recognize that mistake and then to buy myself the space to kind of um, figure it out and do it properly and 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 relaunch everything, which I'm I'm just going through that process now. But um. Because now I'm eight years older and wiser, more experienced, I, I have more skills in terms of the marketing side of things and, and the craft is a little better and I'm, I, my email game is a lot better. So now I'm getting to relaunch all these books and kind of start again in, in historical fiction and I'm launching a new pen name in, in science fiction. I'm doing that with all the experience that I've accrued over the last eight years. So, you know, I, I've just spent the last couple of weeks building like a six month long onboarder for my for my email to, to keep the readers busy um, until the next book comes out. And not only that, but to actually like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm building up a Facebook page and getting great engagement on it. Um, different pieces of content being used in different ways, because I now know with a piece of content, what channel that should go in and, you know, how I can recycle that in another way. And, and just basically making the hours I put into work. Um, pay out for me in, in, in much better ways so like that's all something that I learned like especially over the last couple of years I I like when I sat down to re- kind of reboot my career I started thinking about you know all this tail chasing I was doing like you know I was I was active on forums and on Twitter and on Facebook and here there and everywhere and I was kind of reinventing the wheel every time you know and just typing out fresh content constantly mm-hmm. and I started thinking like okay well you know I could be a lot smarter with how I kind of recycle content Mm-hmm. So something that might start off as a series of emails to my readers might then, you know, turn into a talk at a conference or it might go the other way. I might do a talk at a conference and then tease that idea out over five or six emails. And then I see from the response, you know, this can actually be turned into a book or, or you know, or it can be turned into a blog post to get people to sign up to my mailing list. Or, and like I'm constantly thinking of different ways to take one piece of work and make it work for me in five or six different ways. And I'm much more strategic about that now, which means I can get a lot more done. And um, so like, you know, I, it might look like a lot of work to, to write 10 or 11 emails to my list, 2000 words long each about Facebook ads. And it is, but that ultimately is going to become a book at some point, you know, right. and this way I'm getting to beta test it with, with 10,000 people in my target audience. Like I'm actually just doing that at the moment with um, Amazon Decoded, which was a free reader magnet I gave out, started giving out two years ago to my list. And so like, you know, I've, I've had feedback. Well, I haven't had feedback from 10,000 people, but like 10,000 people have read that book and, and lots of them have given me feedback on it. So I know which bits worked really well, what could do with more um, fleshing out as I turn that into a full length book, which is probably going to come out in the next month or two. 
So, yeah. yeah. So like that's like all the, all that all that time I put in writing that book and then responding to emails of people who is all getting in, is all invested in this book that will, will now end up making me money as well. And then it's like almost, those. Sorry, go on. Oh, I was gonna say it's almost like you're crowdsourcing a lot of stuff, like your feedback, your you're yeah. sending information out, getting feedback, processing it. It's really smart. Right. And, and, and from people who are like right central to my, to my target audience. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there's lots of ways that you can take pieces of work and, and, and make it work for you in several different ways. And I'm getting to apply all that knowledge now as I relaunch my historical fiction. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I can see that, like, for example, before I used to run a, a set American history blog. And writing a blog post for you know, nonfiction audience or for a marketing audience is one thing, but writing a 1,500, 2,000 word article on, on, you know, the history of colonial Spain, Spanish empire in Peru or something, that's an incredible amount of work. And yeah. I realized after writing, you know, five, six, seven, eight of these blog posts that, you know, that's almost a, a, book's, a book's worth of research there. So that's a terrible use of my time. But now that content is, you know, I'm able to use that content in, in onboarders and in guest posts and in other ways. So I'm, I'm getting smarter about how I invest my time and how I can make that pay out. That is, that is really smart. Um, I need to be smarter about that myself. Um, so what is one thing you thought um, was a great idea but turned out not to be such a great idea? Um, yeah, well, I... Well, this is another huge mistake. Was I? I, I prefer reading standalones, especially when it comes to historical uh, yeah. fiction. Yeah, I prefer reading standalones. I like a big meaty book and and just one and done, and and get the whole story from start to finish. So naturally, that's what I lean towards um, writing when I started out. Um, but it's such a huge mistake. Um, it's so much easier to to sell a series, to market a series. Um, readers respond to them much more, and it's just much an easier way to make money. Um, so it seemed like a good idea at the time to write, you know, like write the kind of book you want to read. Like that, mm-hmm. I think that is generally good advice, but you know, you also have to temper it a little bit with some realism when it comes to the marketplace. Right. And realistically speaking, um, it's very, very difficult. Um, especially in genre fiction to make a living writing just standalone books. And I think you have to meet the market halfway and be a little bit humble about that. And, and, and just accept that, you know, and you know what, I, I actually, um, there's another false assumption I made. I, I, I just assumed I wouldn't enjoy it as much. I wouldn't enjoy writing a series as much because I didn't mm-hmm. enjoy reading them as much. But actually the intellectual challenge of trying to write a series is, is another level again from writing a standalone because you don't just have the arc and the, the story you're writing, of course, but then you have like a series arc. You have to think of all sorts of mm-hmm. things like what condition am I leaving my protagonist in at the end of this book? And, and how am I going to start again and, and have them face further challenges without it seeming like a retread? And, mm. and all those things were really interesting challenges that really kind of got my creativity going. So I wouldn't necessarily assume, make that assumption. I think it's, it's dangerous to assume that you wouldn't enjoy writing something that you don't necessarily enjoy reading. You know, your reading preferences don't necessarily reflect in your writing preferences. Right. 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 Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Great, well, great answer. <laughs> um, I was going to say, the series thing. See, I come from uh, mysteries. Almost every every mystery is in a series, you know, just because that's what readers expect. So, I've just finished writing a nonfiction book about how to write a series because that was like a whole new concept to me. <laughs> so, the so I I kind of because it's taken me a while to figure out that that like some series they have like the protagonist has a huge arc and there's a big change 
in the other series like the Sherlock Holmes or, you know, Jack Reacher, they're more flatline characters and they don't have a big change. So once I kind of figured all that out, I was like, oh, this is interesting. And it's like, you can do a whole lot with a series that I didn't realize when I first started writing as well. I was like, there's so many options and variables you can play with. It's, it's challenging, I think. So I think it's very cool. I was reading Libby Hawker's amazing book, The um, Take Off Your Pants. Mm-hmm. And like what, what, one thing that really resonated with me in that is when she said, like, you know, a, a great character has a great flaw. And a great novel is when you, you take that character's flaw and you keep hitting them over the head with it repeatedly. And the resolution, you know, the, the big battle at the end doesn't have to be a battle per se, but it's a battle. It's, it's usually something, an external obstacle that the hero is overcoming, but also the internal one, them addressing their own flaw or, you know, <clears throat> coming to terms with it or, or, you know, fixing it in some way. And I was like, okay, so what do you do in book two, right? You know, yeah. you, and that was, that, <laughs> then it came to me, you know, sometimes the answer is just so simple, you know, that you're wondering how you didn't think of it in the first place. Like, well, a character can have more than one flaw, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, or yeah, you play just, it out over the series and yeah. you've got, you know, they, they think they've conquered it, but maybe they haven't, you know, and it yeah. comes back or it changes. Yeah. There's or, a lot. or sometimes the solution, solution causes an, a, a, another, another problem to arise. Problems, you know? yeah. There's a few different yeah. ways to tackle it, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's fun once you start getting into that stuff. Yeah. Well, so what changes have you seen in your genre over the course of your career, either nonfiction or fiction, whichever you'd like to talk about? Uh, historical fiction is probably the most obvious one, and I'm I'm not entirely sure if this is a change in the genre per se or me just actually noticing stuff for the first time. <laughs> but um, because and, and this is not not because I'm an idiot. Uh, well, I am, but for other reasons. But <laughs> I think there's a big difference between what historical fiction readers' tastes in the UK and the US. Mm-hmm. And like, if you look at the UK charts in historical fiction. It's a lot more um, kind of war men stuff, basically. I think the readership is more male, basically, in the UK, or it's more 50-50, whereas in the US, it's more like 70-30 female. So if you look at the Amazon charts, the top 100 in the UK and the US, it's totally different. In the UK, you'll see like a lot of Ken Follett, Bernard Cornwell, this kind of like you know medieval King Arthur, like a lot of war stuff. And if you look at the, if you look at the US charts, it's... It, Sometimes I think I clicked on the wrong chart. Is this women's fiction? <laughs> Honestly, like it is. It's it's like historical women's fitting fiction with a historical setting, and a lot of it is 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 basically like sad romance. If you if you want another word for it, you know, where, where they don't get together at the end, or someone gets cancer or something, but yeah. set in the fifties or in the eighteen nineties or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so that has been hard for me to grapple with because it's not the kind of stuff I read, and I don't know if I, it's the kind of stuff I can write. But then you're trying to think, okay, again can I meet the market halfway here? Like, um, so then I was like, okay, with my next series, I'm going to put a really strong romantic thread in it. You know, I can do that. I think, I hope. Um, and maybe a few more viewpoint characters that are female, maybe even a female protagonist one day I'll, I'll have a stab at, but you know, these are all things I should be doing with my writing anyway. Mm -hmm. And I should have been doing from the start. But I think, you know, if I look at the diet of books I was fed growing up, it was all very pale, male and stale, as they say, <laughs> you know. So, like, these things are good. Like, you can you can run away from these challenges. And I, I did, quite frankly. I was like, well, I don't want to write that kind of stuff. So I'll go and, you know, write some science fiction short stories or I'll, I'll go and write another book on marketing or something. And I was like, okay, well, hold on. Like, you know, is there a way that I can, that I can meet this halfway? Is there a way that I can do it that I find satisfying and, and that I'll be good at as well, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I, I was like, okay, I found a, a cool romantic thread that I can, I can layer through this whole series. And, and it, it kind of challenged me as a writer, kind of pushed me into, into a new area. And I think, 
you know, that's good, you know? Yeah. Ultimately, that's what we want. I mean, I think that's what we should want anyway, uh, to get better and to, uh, to reach more people. I mean, you're going to meet, you're going to reach a whole different set of uh, a whole different audience with something like that than you would your other books. So, and we don't want to be bored either when we're writing. No, we don't want it to be like, oh, yuck, I don't want to write that again. Yeah. Yeah, and you, 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 you can't row against the tide completely. Like, like I'm looking at um, – so like the other trend, if I was looking at the historical fiction charts in particular, um, the other trend that I see there is, you know, well, obviously there's always the trend for like the orphan stories, the Holocaust stories. Like that's, that's massive. That's been going on for years. Yeah. It started with, with like the orphan train. It's just been going and going and going. Um, that's not something that massively interests me. And the other big one is like World War II books. And like World War II has never really grabbed me. I don't know why. Um, it's not the history that I'm interested in. I'm, I'm more interested in kind of 19th century stuff. And then I, but then I start thinking, well, what, what was happening in, in South America during World War II? And now I'm excited. You know? yes. So there's always, a, there's always a way, I think, that you can kind of meet the market halfway. Just, you just overcome your initial kind of urge to like, just run away from an idea and just, just play with it a little bit and see if you can find some overlap there between what you like and, and what's selling. That's really wise advice. Really good. Um, so what's the best thing you've done to set yourself up for success? Because uh, while you're um, self-deprecating, you are successful. I mean, you've done really well, especially with your nonfiction stuff. I think, I think you know, having a circle of friends is is absolutely crucial in, in so many different ways. Because you know, uh, it's it's important what times are good and what times are bad. Like yeah. I remember the first, I think, let's see, 2011, 12, 13, 14. Every year, my sales were tripling, quadrupling, just on this line, like growing with the market, basically. Mm-hmm. And then I hit a wall in 2015, 16, 17, things went down. And then 2018, jumped back up again, and things are going, going a lot better now. But, like, you, you really need those friendships in good times and bad times. You need, um, you need a circle of people around you because this, this business is, is crazy-making, you know. There's all sorts of challenges, like, just, you know, mentally and spiritually. I think it's important to have people you can trust, people you can bounce ideas off. And also just in terms of just hard, more hard-nosed stuff, like people you can do email swaps with, people who can get a sense of what's trending in the market. Um, you can give each other like a leg up too, because especially among self-publishers, I think we're, we're very good at recognizing that we're not really in competition with each other and that we can actually you know, pool audiences and grow together rather than you know, trying to grab readers off each other. Like we, can actually, we can actually grow together. And I think... You know, those connections that you make, especially in your own genre, can be really, really lucrative over time, too. Yeah, I agree yeah. completely. Yeah, so, this business uh, is crazy. You, you need some backup and some friends. Yeah. Some bodyguards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mental bodyguards, that's where I need them a lot of the time because, you know, I, my thoughts do just start to spiral sometimes if things don't go the way I want or the way I think they should. And it's good to have those friends to kind of reel you back in and, yeah. or listen to you and then reel you back in. So, yeah. yeah, and sometimes you need a friend to give you some real talk as well. They were like, you know, yes, exactly. I, I, can, I can sometimes get carried away with, you know, thinking like, okay, now I'm going to set up like a six-month onboarder for my new list and then I'm gonna, that's going to feed into a, a remarketing Facebook campaign and I can get excited about all this stuff and then a friend will start coughing and just you know, maybe get back to work on the next book. And I'm like, okay, yeah. <laughs> And then when I am, when I'm, in, when I'm in the zone with writing, like then, you know, I, I, I'm not even checking sales reports or, or thinking about the marketing stuff, but um, I sometimes need to get nudged back into it. Yeah, yeah. That's, exactly yeah. Right. that's true. Sometimes you need somebody to talk you off the ledge and sometimes you need somebody to 
kind of push, push, you, over, <laughs> push you over and get you to, to do that thing you're scared to do. Sometimes you need that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So where can people find out more about you for your nonfiction and your fiction? At davidgochran.com was the home for all my nonfiction stuff. And they can sign up to my mailing list there or, or check out information about my books. Um, I definitely recommend signing up to the list because you get a free copy of Amazon Decoded. And that's not going to be available for too much longer because it's getting pulled down and turned into a full-length book. So this is your last chance to get it for free. Um, and then my nonfiction uh, is under davidgochranbooks.com. And you can, you can check that out if you're interested in historical fiction. And the science fiction is super top secret. That's under a pen name <laughs> at the moment. And I haven't actually released anything in it yet. So there's, you won't even be able to snoop it out. But um, I'll probably keep that under wraps for, for quite a bit until I you know, pull the mask off at some point. But I want to kind of, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a, both a literary and a marketing experiment. And I want to keep it just totally kind of, yeah. Um, safe pure. from my existing audiences yeah. and pure yeah. and just it gives me a bit of freedom on the writing side to to be a bit wider like today I've, I probably shouldn't do this halfway into a novel but I've just decided I think this will work better in first person you know so I'm just going <laughs> to rip it and I, I've never I've never even written you know um, I've never even written a, a short story or anything in first person so this will uh -huh. be a first for me and if I was if I was releasing that under you know to, to readers that had read some of my stuff before I might be quite a bit nervous about that but no one's going to know who I am. So, you know, if it's a total disaster, then I can just, you know, never fess up to it. So, like, it, it gives you total <laughs> gives you a lot of freedom. So, I, so I'm going to try it. I'm going to try rewriting it now because I was hitting a bit of a wall, but it's halfway through the book. And, you know, you just hit that wall and you're like, I'm not sure if this is any good, you know. Yeah. Hey, there's something missing here. And I was like, is it the world building? Is it the, you know, the character? And I didn't know what it was. And it was just today I was reading, reading a brilliant book. It was um, Murderbot by Martha Wells which is a really great science fiction um, novella. And it was in first person, and I was just like, do you know what? First person could be the way to go for this. And I actually, again, <laughs> I, I usually hate reading first person stuff. I definitely hate writing it. But again, question your assumptions and see where it takes you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, if you should ever decide that you want to reveal your stuff and <laughs> your new, new pin name, we'd love to have you back and talk about that if you want to about how oh, it went and everything. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully it won't be a giant mistake that I'll be sharing with your audience. Right? <laughs> no, I doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for bearing with us and our mistakes and messing up the time. You're a trooper to come on, even oh. though I messed up the, the call. Time, oh, it's all so. good. It's all good. Thank you. Thank you for having me along. I appreciate oh. it. All right. We, we for, love having you. Thank, thank you, David. Yeah. Thanks for talking to us. All right. See you, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. We hope this episode inspired you, empowered you, and made you laugh a little bit too. If you loved it, tell your friends about it. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review. We look forward to being with you again next week.